Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that pops the bonnet on things and really looks at them. On today's edition, a government leak claimed that the UK is considering a Swiss-style relationship with EU as it works on our post-Brexit relationship. Is the narrative on Brexit really shifting? Or does the reaction suggest we are a long way from reconciling with Europe? Plus, Keir Starmer says he'll abolish the House of Lords when Labour wins power crushing my dreams of one day being mates with Baroness Smith of Pimlico. <laughs> is constitutional reform sexy or is it a vote loser? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, from turkey dinner in a can to festive sandwiches and stockpiling cheese footballs. With a month to go to the holidays, what festive culinary traditions are we looking forward to? Let's meet the panel. First up is campaigner, polling obsessive and chief executive of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Hello. Hello, hello. In PMQs this week, uh, we began to see a clear shape to Labour attack election lines. 12 years of mismanagement, UK economy lagging behind others, tax favours for banks, energy companies and non-DOMs by someone rich enough to afford a private doctor at 250 quid a pop. The last element seems to me to have the potential to really wound Sunak. But what is wrong with someone paying privately to see a doctor? I mean, I think, let's put this in context, Alex. One week after signing off what was a real-term budget cut for the NHS, it is just not a good look for the Prime Minister. Mm. And it only adds to this narrative that he is completely out of touch. He has no business making decisions about the NHS when he doesn't even use it. You know, it, the disconnect, the utter disconnect between what we're all facing on a day-to-day -day basis, struggling to get GP appointments, getting referrals months and months, if not years down the line for things. And it, it, so for him, it's the optics that people, of course, you know, can be allowed to opt for private health care if they want. But I don't think any Brit wants us to end up like the USA, where you simply won't call an ambulance in an emergency because it's going to cost you $5,000 mm. if you haven't got insurance or, you know, a system where we refuse treatment for pre-existing conditions, uh, which is already a, a roadblock for people going private in the UK. And, you know, if, if the NHS is continually starved of funds, more and more people will be forced to go private if they can afford it. So, look, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with it if you're, a, you know, an ordinary person. But when you are the prime minister who is in charge of ultimately funding or defunding the NHS at a time when the economy is in such dire straits and people are struggling so much and the backlogs are so huge post-pandemic and because of labour shortages in the NHS. It's just unforgivable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the way I saw it very nicely put was that the problem is not him being able to pay 250 quid to get an appointment on the day. The problem is that he will have no appreciation of what it's like exactly. to not exactly. be able to do that. Um, Justin Quirk is a journalist, author and unofficial president of the Glam Metal fandom. Hello, Justin. Hello, Alex. Unboxed was the rebranded Festival of Brexit. It cost $120 million to organise and aspired to attract 66 million visitors. In September, reports suggested they had managed only about 250,000. A more sympathetic estimate suggests it's up to 2 million. The organisers are now claiming 18 million attended, even though nobody knew about it. What on earth is going on? Uh, yeah, this is some quite creative accountancy going on here in the uh, the debrief. Um, so I think the last numbers I saw, the organisers had rounded that up to 3 million, uh, which I was saying in person, <laughs> with the rest watching it online and on TV, which is not quite the same thing as uh, actually going. They're getting absolutely roasted by the DCLS. So, so they counted people that just saw a video on their TikTok? Yes, I mean, because certain of the exhibits had an online component or a TV, they tessellated with a TV show uh -huh. in some way. So they were really broadening the reach of it out. Yeah. Uh, they're getting absolutely hauled over it by the DCMS. Julian Knight, the chair, is talking about a very poor return indeed. Um, I mean, that's £66 million number. I'm going to say any cultural endeavour, setting your target audience as the entire population of the UK is quite a ballsy move to go in with. So, you know, maybe they were making a rod for their own back there. And in defence, some of it was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't naff in the way that the yeah. Millennium Dome was. But the 
Two things it really floundered on. First is obviously the Brexit thing. You know, these things never work unless you have a groundswell of kind of goodwill behind them from people like journalists, creative artists, artists. people who make podcasts, you know, things like that. Um, people Do you who... mean to say there wasn't a groundswell? Well, weirdly. With goodwill all... <laughs> for the Brexit festival. Despite our best efforts. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, weirdly, all those people having been continually slagged off by the government for the past five years weren't willing to put their shoulders to the wheel for it. And the second was just a massive failure of awareness. There was no overarching brand work in it. So even if people saw something that they quite liked, um, like the light show thing at the Tower of London that came out from Hull and Belfast, that was really good. But no one was looking at that stuff and going, oh, it's part of this much yeah, bigger yeah, thing, yeah. so I should go and see some other things. Um, probably haven't heard the end of this story, though. Um, they're now being investigated by the National Audit Office, and the DCMS is using dread phrases like an irresponsible use of public Oh, what well, <laughs> a perfect <laughs> metaphor for Brexit. I don't think that sounds good. Finally, everybody, rock your body, Dunt is back, all right. After the rigours of researching the second season of hit podcast, Origin Story, and having finished his new book, How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, he has properly returned to a warm, angry bosom. Hello, Ian. <laughs> I don't like the way that you clasp your hands to your bosom when you use the word warm and angry. Ian, our listeners know that lots of bits of Westminster are broken. This is the, the content they come for. but. In researching your new book, did you find bits of dysfunction that surprised even you? I was surprised by how little worked at almost any level that I looked at. I'm not really mean it. I found two things that worked. <laughs> the, the is, okay, what are they? Well, I'm not going to fucking spoil it. Like, you know, I suppose the oddest, uh, you know, there, there is literally... The big clock works now. The clock, the clock is working. Yeah, although the building still doesn't work. The building's fucked. Um... You know what's funny? The thing that struck me the most is is probably Downing Street. Of once you comprehend that we put the government in a house and what that fucking entails mm. for governance, it's actually quite frightening. So I was ended up sort of speaking to people in Downing Street who were working from before I was born to people who were in administrations of, oh, I don't know, like a few weeks ago, <laughs> you know. And, and it's always the exact same process of saying, like, we can't really do it right. Because we put the government in a house. Mm. And once you do that, just as a basic functioning element of working <laughs> together, you can't do it. So you ask people like, why is it in, in the house? <laughs> and they're like, well, fuck, it's just we've always done it that way. And you're like, is this the only fucking, you know, it is actually unbelievable. So oddly enough, I mean, no part of it works. So inertia is basically the biggest force. It's just, yeah, it's, it's inertia as a form of pathology, really. <laughs> and so, and by the end of it, you just think, well, lots of the other bits are about incentives, but this part is just about architecture. Mm. And that, to me, was just the most astonishing thing that we would, have, we would have become so sort of seduced by tradition that we would undermine our current day-to-day -day political life. Mm. I look forward to much more um, from it. How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't is available to pre-order now. Now, on the day we recorded, judges of the Supreme Court have ruled that the Scottish government cannot hold an independence referendum without the UK government's consent. We tried to get an SNP spokesperson on the show, but because it's on the day we're recording, they were a bit time poor. So can we knock it about a little bit among ourselves um, it was largely expected, wasn't it, that they would lose that case. So where do we go now? What's the next step for them? How about you, Ian? It was expected, and every lawyer I'd spoken to since they started talking about this said it's quite clear in the act that it's a reserve power. A court is going to find that it's a reserve power, even if it's advisory. And she presumably knew this was going to happen. And she has said what her next step is, which is that she's going to turn the general election, you know, into seeking a mandate for a referendum. Yeah. That's exactly what they were doing in the last elections in Scotland, and I think they won that mandate quite cleanly. They had a majority for parties, including the Greens in government, who had spoken about wanting a referendum. They got the fucking votes. I think they had the mandate, and I say this as a unionist. Whether she'll get the mandate in a general election, I think is more questionable at the moment, especially with a resurgent Labour Party. We'll have to wait and see. And she may, it's possible, and I'm not predicting it, she may have created a rod for her own back here. Do you think that's harder to clear that bar in a general election because people are also voting on other issues? Whereas it, if it's 
a very straight binary vote, it's easier. No, 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 because I mean, it, it wouldn't have been that case in the Scottish elections. And Scottish elections, you know, the whole system there is designed so that no one gets a majority, which she didn't, you know. Um, although her results were still extraordinary for that kind of system. So no, it should be technically easier. I just think that the actual historic moment isn't necessarily with her in the way that it has been with her over the last six years or so. Naomi, what do you think? Similarly, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not pro-independence personally. I mean, Best of Britain doesn't take a corporate view on it. Um, I dislike nationalism, but I can understand why Scotland feels the way it does when we've got a first-past-the-post electoral system and a hard Brexit. And I think until the pro-union parties begin to understand, accept and address those things. This is just going to keep rumbling on, giving you know more and more fuel to Nicola Sturgeon's cause north of the border. I mean, I think the, the, the thing I heard, the soundbite I heard coming out of it, which I found extraordinarily persuasive and strong, is that SNP are now turning around and saying, tell us then, how can we get... Mm-hmm. the right to self-determine. And that's a really, it's a really difficult question because it doesn't have an answer other than when we decide to say so. Um, and so I think they've created a situation where they've illustrated basically their core concern, which is that they're under the thumb of Westminster quite effectively. They have. It's funny as well to think about how much easier it would be for Labour to give them what they want, not politically in terms of the party mm. political element. But this is part of the Brexit denialism, right? It's saying nothing bad can have come from Brexit. But the only material basis upon which you can make the claim for another referendum is because of Brexit. Yeah. So the Conservative Party are in a position to say, well, of course, no, that doesn't yeah. trigger anything at all. So it all flows mm-hmm. again from that one position. I think once there's a change of government, even though, of course, the rhetoric from Summer is going to be pretty st- stern at the moment on this, you know, ultimately, if you weren't part of the people that delivered Brexit, you're probably going to take a more light time response to the consequences of it. I just think there's a general democratic principle there that people are allowed to change their mind on issues. And we recognize it, for instance, when it comes to Northern Ireland, they get a a sort of approval of the Brexit um, setup every seven years that's written into the protocol. But Mm. we don't recognize it when it comes to other stuff. And I, I don't think that's a consistent position. It's one month until Christmas or Christmas Eve if you're listening on Patreon. And with that, we've got a veritable Santa's sack of new podcasters merch. From ho, 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 God, what now tea towels to wipe off any spilt bucks fizz to special mugs for the woke snowflakes in your life. Visit podmarket.co.uk to pick up a Black Friday deal. It's 15% of everything with an extra 10% for Patreons. Marvellous. Now, new polling from YouGov has found that public support for Brexit is at an all-time low, with 56% believing it was a bad idea, including one in five people who voted leave, and only 32% still in support. Catch up, guys. This comes off the back of Redfield Wilton polling that showed 52% would actually vote to rejoin, and only 39% wanting to stay out. Thoroughly unsatisfied with that, GB News conducted their own poll to set the matter (laughs) straight with host and uber Brexiteer Martin Dobney ready to reveal a much more vindicating number. On the GB News poll, which has just closed, you also voted to get Brexit done despite a late surge from the the Remain camp. Uh, Basically, it is now... Right, we'll take a look at the detail after the break because we've got so much more to come in the programme today, including the Cornish charity worker. And the outcome is 45% are pro-Brexit with 55% against it. That silence at the end? That's Martin discovering (laughs) that 55% of GB News viewers had also said Brexit was a bad idea. Cue the big story of the weekend, a splash on the front page of the Sunday Times saying that the government is discussing a Swiss-style relationship with the EU, tangy, versatile, with a closer texture but still full of holes. Ian, (laughs) those rumours were quashed quite comprehensively by Sunak on Monday, but Harry Cole, of all people, tweeted that a story like that doesn't end up on the front page of the Sunday Times without someone very senior babbling about it. Was this someone making trouble for Sunak? 
or a kite being flown on his behalf? Well, we don't know, but I mean, I think it's pretty safe to presume. I mean, can you say that? I think you can. I think it's pretty safe to presume that this was coming from the Treasury and it would probably have been like a spad of the Chancellor. That's the kind of thing we would expect. Yeah. Quotes in it sounded a bit spaddy to me, but maybe it was Hunt himself. And of course, <laughs> the attitude of it was very, very Treasury indeed. <laughs> you know, which is, oh, has the storm passed? Maybe we can try and, you know, fix Make some of this some shit. money. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just read it and just thought, well, that looks like it came from the Treasury. Yeah, Hunt mm. uh, denied it. Sure. Um, today, Wednesday, in front of a committee, but denied it very, very carefully. Brexiters are plainly unhappy with nations of Norway or Switzerland. Well, they're unhappy about everything, but <laughs> but they are just as unhappy with a hard Brexit status quo because of the protocol. So six years on, are we any closer to understanding what might constitute a real Brexit in their feverish little mind. No, because there's no, you know, I think we've established this now, that there's no practical scenario you could present that would make them happy. I mean, it's at this point, it's an emotional instinct rather than a sort of formal project. Not so long ago, they fucking loved Switzerland. You know, I mean, not the place. There are quite a lot of <laughs> clips doing the rounds of them saying, oh, wouldn't it be terrible if we were like Switzerland? Yeah, exactly. They, Rich they, they always used to go on about it. Yeah. They, I mean, for years, you know, when you do, and especially when you talk to the sort of the proper EFTA guys, that subculture of a subculture of a subculture <laughs> of Brexiters. <laughs> oh, decent people. Posse. Right. I, I, no, but I love those guys. I mean, some of them are personal friends, you know. They, they were the sort of liberal pro-immigration Brexity guys, and most of them came over to remain over the course of those horrific years. You know, I mean, they were always like, well, yeah, for decades we spoke about Switzerland. Switzerland isn't really a thing, by the way. It's just a shitload of different bilaterals. Yeah, it's just you an know, ad hoc deal. Right, and it's not great because no one in Switzerland understands it, you know. And so there, it's very easy to sell any particular moment as heavy-handed Brussels, which frankly... And Brussels, and Brussels would dearly love to ditch it. There is no chance yes, they're going to yeah. give that... <laughs> Yeah. replica to anyone else. And I think they said so. Uh, in all of this, the reaction from Brussels was lost, which was an official basically laughing at the idea and saying, right. That's, that ain't going to happen. It doesn't, it doesn't fit in a box, and they don't like things that don't fit yeah. in boxes. Well, because that's what cherry-picking yeah. is, right? You know, So just, it's going to be a no on that. But ultimately, it doesn't mean that, does it? It doesn't really mean Switzerland. What it means is tighter, lots of little deals, let's see what we can do. And so we can call it daydreaming, but ultimately what, what they're saying is not that different to what Labour is saying of like, this is a shit deal, we've got to make it closer. And as soon as you start talking about making it closer, you start talking about things like equivalence, like alignment and the great Veterinary gravity agreement. of trade will start taking over and affecting our politics. Mm. Naomi, um, I mentioned the latest sort of headline polling at the top. Best for Britain has been doing in-depth research on this for a while. Is the tide really turning? Does it feel like that to you? And what interesting sort of tidbits lurk beneath the big headline? Well, yes, we had been doing a lot of that. Uh, but actually, we haven't at Best for Britain tracked the, the sort of leave, remain question as directly recently. Mm. A, because other, other big polls do it. And B, because it is actually... Be Coming much less of a signifier of voting intention hmm. that that is fracturing um what we have been doing which i think is very interesting is drilling down into the don't knows you'll remember that a lot of these big polls we've seen with big leads for labor you know 25 30 points ahead of the conservatives often contain quite a sizable chunk of people saying don't know and they concerned me because I was I was worried that they might be shy conservatives. So we did do a huge poll, 10,000 plus poll, and we've MRP'd it, which means we have it at constituency level. And we did one on the day that Trust resigned. And then we did one a few days after Sunak was confirmed as prime minister. Uh -huh. And the, the, the first one had 13% of people saying don't know. And then it dropped to 10% once Sunak was uh, in post. And then the rest of them, we asked them a follow-up question. And so we've really drilled into it and, you know, uh, how likely are you to vote? And they are 88% likely to vote. Lovely. So, the, you know, the, the, it makes me think, yo, you really are shy, shy Tories here. Then we asked them a bunch of other questions. And what we've been able to find out from that is that they fit the profile two to one of a typical Conservative voter. So I think the story from that is 
Yes, Labour are clearly ahead in the polls, but the return of the shy Tory, which is a phrase that was often used in the 90s, has returned. And if on the numbers that we think they break back to the Conservatives at election time, I think you're going to see that landslide prediction drop right back to a much smaller majority Mm -hmm. slash potentially even hung parliament. Yeah. Um, It also seems to me from socials and from being a sort of compulsive consumer of news in every format that the economic damage of Brexit is no longer a taboo subject. Mm. Like recently, in the last couple of weeks, a lot of senior people in public life are pointing to it. Public interest is high, analysis pieces everywhere, and business is suddenly piping up in a much more unequivocal way. Way Is it just the passage of time that has revived the debate or are there other factors feeding it? I think it's just really reflective of the fact that Brexit fantasies were something people could indulge in when times were good. And now that so many are struggling to pay for food, to pay for their heating, they are less tolerant of politicians offering jam tomorrow. And there's a snowball effect at play as well. The more businesses speak up, the more politicians will feel braver to say more than they have been, the more journalists then cover it, which in turn makes more businesses and politicians feel confident in in speaking up. And I think journalists are being a bit braver, which is good to see, but many are still not where they need to be. I think part of this will be the unhealthy relationships that journalists who rely on uh, certain politicians for access uh, and the fact that both main parties are still refusing to say that Brexit is actively damaging our economy. Um, and, and and I would like them to, you know, grill politicians more on this. And certainly if I had Sunak or Summer in front of a camera or a microphone for a couple of minutes, I'd be asking them little else because it is so intrinsic to the myriad of other problems facing the country right now. Mm. I'd be beating them with it. Justin, um, a Tory backbencher has declared that the establishment has taken back control. I mean, Sunak is a hardcore Brexiter and he's now prime minister. What will it take for these people to be happy with the level of control they have over this country's well, politics? Nothing ever, because I mean, to Ian's point earlier, <laughs> this is about mindset not actual politics. And, you know, you saw this through the leadership campaign in the summer where trust was seen as acceptable to the right wing of the party in a way that Sunak wasn't, which made no sense in terms of their actual political track records or what they actually stood for. But what she did offer and embrace was this kind of lunatic simplicity, which was (laughs) what they wanted. And I think that use of the word establishment is really interesting. And I don't know if it was um, Tom Nichols, the ex-Republican defence strategies guy, wrote a really good piece in The Atlantic uh, a couple of weeks ago where he said that over the past 70 years, the motivating force in right-wing politics has moved from nationalism to economics and now to resentment. And this is now this incredibly powerful driver and, you know, more so in America, but I think the same thing is fringing over here. And I think it's the sense you get of them when you get the things like that backbencher line there is this feeling that they sense there's a group of people sort of laughing at jokes they don't get or using mm. cutlery in a way that I can't quite get their heads <laughs> around. And it's that sort of makes them feel excluded. And I think weirdly, something people like us probably missed is that I think that was part of Truss's attraction. She was naff and she was awkward and she was a bit weird. And I think in some way that's reassuring to people whose entire worldview is predicated on essentially saying the establishment is looking down on me. They must have missed the Miliband option. (laughs) Um, According to Byline Times, there are only 12 paid up members of the ERG left now. And they're complaining that uh, Suella Braverman is the only true believer left in cabinet. I mean, this means people like Gove, Raab, Badenoch, Barclays, Howie, Cleverly, oh, wow. Morden, there are many others. They're discounted now as non-believers. What makes Braverman stand out? And does that reveal some real motivations between that core Brexit group? 
Yeah, I mean, this that is a huge drop. I mean, we're properly down into, you know, the last few Japanese commandos hold out <laughs> on the island. Mark, Fran- Mark Francois in the little pint-sized military fatigues waiting for the uh, waiting for the big drop. Um, and, I mean, there's some big names that have gone. When they're looking at who hasn't paid their subs this year, it's like Andrew Jenkins, John Whittingdale, Andrew, Bri- Andrew Bridgen of all... Et tu, et tu, Cost of living, man. Et tu, Bridgen. Cost you- of living. We cut Netflix, they cut the ERG subs. Yeah, they're probably are people who were in the ERG where it was just about opportunism and riding what they saw as this sort of populist wave. That's receding, as Naomi was saying, you know, the polling is, and the sentiment seems to be sort of moving pretty sharply back the other way, so they've backed away from that. But again, I, th- I think we've got to remember that for many of them, this is their happy place. Mm. You know, as a movement, Brexit's always been about seeking heretics rather than converts. And for that kind of mindset, you know, if you're saying, why is Braveman the figurehead? She's perfect for that. I mean, she's, you know, spiteful, dogmatic, aggressive. That speech she gave, which is about dreaming of seeing, you know, refugees deported. That was one of those odd moments, which I thought that even by the sort of shabby standards of right wing discourse that we've had in the last few years, that was so hateful and so mad and so beyond the bounds of normality <laughs> that it had that absolutely clarifying effect. And I think it was like, you know, someone walking into the prison on day one and stabbing the biggest good prisoner. It's just saying, <laughs> I'm prepared to go further, be more offensive than anyone else in defence of this ideology. I'm pretty and to tell. I mean, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, come come at the king, you'd better not miss. And I mean, she, <laughs> she really didn't. But... Ian, considering the shift in public opinion, is Labour in danger of being left behind the curve on this? Or is that the point, that any softening of Brexit cannot originate in Westminster? From their perspective, they just want it to die. Their way of killing it as a debate, not as a project, um, is essentially to come up with neutralising statements. And the neutralising statements they've come up with, I am perfectly fine with, because it was about as far as we were going to get them. What what was crucial, do you remember all those, sort of like a couple of years ago, after it had happened and when Starmer was just sort of running from any mention of it, yeah. was to get them in a position where they would say, this deal is bad. That's all they had to say, because once you've got that, you've mm. got an avenue, a bucket that you can put all the complaints into. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to come up with a new deal. That was crucial, because it means that they're, kind of committed to, to renegotiating that thing. They've talked about an agriculture, you know, fixing agriculture. Now, agriculture is not a major part of our economy. But there are there are a couple of different avenues that you can go with ag- agriculture. You can g- be all New Zealand about it, and it's just equivalence. It doesn't really matter, but it won't make much difference. But if you want to get rid of all the things that they say they want to get rid of, you're talking about alignment. Okay, you might not be talking about alignment on a huge mm. policy area, on a huge legal area, but you're talking about alignment. And once you've established that principle, fine, we're going to align on regulations here. Yeah. Suddenly, you're in a whole different debate. And I think people maybe underestimate, if you look at the kind of rhetoric coming from Labour at the moment, it's not enough to satisfy people like us. Of sure. course it isn't. It's sure. not meant for us. But it's a but direction it could of go travel, quite far. And it's yeah. saying certainly no further. And actually, it, it has to go the other way. As far as I can tell, the window of opportunity for them is no further divergence all the way over to we're not going to do freedom of movement. Within that, which is a pretty wide range of things, ultimately. They're kind of yeah. saying all of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Could yeah. Be um, Naomi, former Environment and Food Secretary George Eustace. And former UKIP councillor. And for <laughs> the and, Mr. Ben of <laughs> the crowning achievement of his career, he admitted that Truss's Australia deal is poor. That to quote him, it sacrificed quality for speed. Um, when we said it, it was Ramona's. Um, <laughs> now, Kemi Badenoch has the international trade brief now. Is there pressure for more quick? deals, are there any to be had? I will come back to the second part of that, but I do think it's important to pause for a second to acknowledge just how craven and despicable that Eustace admission was. Mm -hmm. And actually, Mm -hmm. Dominic Johnson, trade minister very briefly uh, under Liz Truss, business partner at Somerset Capital with Jacob Rees-Mogg, also did an interview with Politico confirming the same, that the government was acting against the national interest. It's something we've known for a while, but for one of their own number to admit it 
is a new low and we should not skate over it. Mm. Um, you know, mm. Sunak has been explicit that he is not going to follow the Johnson Trust strategy of rushing through quick trade deals, which undermine all of you know the important British industries for a cheap photo op and a, a flag shagging opportunity. Um, and we saw this with the India deal. Remember that the headlines were all about, you know, Diwali was the, the date by which a deal would be struck at the end of October. And it didn't happen. Now, how much of that was down to Sunak is is questionable, but it certainly looks like the foot is off the trade deal accelerator with the new administration. Obviously, the Republican-controlled House in the US saying they will not sign off any trade deal with the UK uh, until it stops threatening unilateral action over the NI protocol. And then the the one we keep hearing about is the CP. TTP, have I got that right? The... CPTPP. Yeah, um, and that that is also questionable because it would make removing trade barriers with Europe a lot more difficult, and that's clearly where Hunt's head is at at the moment with uh, uh, any kind of Swiss-style kite flying we have seen. I think Canada's probably one to watch. Mm. Justin, Sunak refused to even address calls by the CBA to relax immigration rules because labour shortages are choking economic recovery. He literally just blanked anyone asking about it, he's apparently solely focused on so-called illegal migration. Will that line wash with business? Uh, I don't think it will. I mean, like you said, that was quite a bold gambit, being at the CBI and just refusing to answer <laughs> questions from the CBI. Um, I mean, like CBI director, it was uh, Tony Danker was yeah. very clear. He was speaking immediately before Sunak, so it wasn't even, there was no clear water between these things. He was very clear about what the problem is and what the solution is. You know, it's just, too few British workers for too few vacancies and what he was also flagging up more importantly was a skills mismatch where workers do exist. So they're calling quite explicitly for economic migration in areas which need it in return for fixed term visas. So that's also giving businesses clarity but also to workers because you're not just asking people to come over for might be six weeks, might be six months, who knows, you might pull the rug on the whole thing which you know is obviously undermining people at the moment. Uh, similar requests also came from the Farmers Union which I thought was interesting going to Ian's point about agriculture which is an interesting area that keeps cropping up because I think one of the things with agriculture is not huge in terms of absolute numbers but it sort of has this totemic quality for the right in the way and well with fishing in the way that I think coal mining does for the left mm, mm. um I mean the farms I mean they're fucked I mean they were saying they've had you know labor shortages up to 40 percent this year average 15 percent over the whole year they're just saying there's entire sectors of the fruit and veg industry that are going to go south because they can't get seasonal workers over um and soon next week, I mean, it just seemed weird in that he's sort of conflating two different issues. The idea that illegal immigration needs to be tackled so that trust can be built in Britain's legal migration system. But it's a completely false equivalent. Ian Danker's speech included the following words. I say to Brexiteers, the best guarantor of Brexit is an economy that grows and the biggest risk is one that doesn't. Is this a real risk or will fanaticism always trump economic reality? No, I think that they've absolutely fucked themselves. Mm. They're so lost in this sort of deranged purity quest that they're unable to countenance even someone mentioning mm. that you might do a deal of any fucking sort with the, the market that's right on your border. <laughs> I mean, you know, that doesn't, that, that's not a winner's move. That seems a quite a weird move. position for the party of free markets. It's a pretty weird position for fucking anyone. <laughs> you know, if they were Mar if they were Marxist Leninists, I'd be like, really? That's you really fucking ground that to the earth. You know, I mean, Naomi, um, the regulatory policy committee, a, a panel put together by the government <laughs> to assess the impact of the legislation, has looked at the Brexit Freedoms <laughs> Bill and marked it as unfit for purpose, the lowest score possible. How bad is it? I mean, not fit for purpose is a compliment for something which was the brainchild of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I mean, at, at a stroke, this bill could undermine 4,000 pieces of legislation. Um, and so it's worth mm. repeating as well that this is purely for ideological optics, as as Ian was just saying, you know, that there is no practicality around it, similar to how they've offered no impact assessment um, and equally offered no benefits from this course of action. And also, like the law-breaking Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, it hands unprecedented and unchecked powers to ministers. Are there enough good people to stop it? Or do you think it might just get quietly shelved by the government? Or are we just going to sleepwalk into this I think the real nightmare? question is... Uh, uh, I, 
are there enough who are just even bright enough, let alone brave enough? I don't know. I'm going to go with no. (laughs) Next up, a collection of the country's oldest fuddy-duddies meeting to chat endlessly about the driest, most esoteric aspects of politics. But enough about our Christmas live show. Keir Starmer has pledged to abolish the House of Lords if Labour wins the next election. Now that Labour has moved from possible to the next government to quite likely to be next government, could we really be waving goodbye to the Lord of Siberia, Evgeny Lebedev, and Baroness of Uplands, Kate Hoey? Um, Justin, critics are claiming an elected second chamber would undermine the union, but Gordon Brown's proposals include an upper chamber where all the nations and regions are represented. What's the argument against? Yeah, um, Brown's review was interesting. I mean, it specifically recommended things like new tax powers for more devolved governments, uh, including like stamp duty, more power for mayors on education, transport, things like research funding. Um, as with most things Gordon Brown comes up with nowadays, I sort of find myself struggling to argue against most of them. He just seems like this complete voice of common sense in the wilderness. Um, there's some parts of it in there about powers for local people to promote bills, which you could imagine just getting snarled up in the most awful sort of time-wasting, bad-faith, NIMBY <laughs> activism. Um, but yeah, broadly, um, yeah, it struck me as most of it sort of seemed like a pretty good idea. Okay, but the proposal still has come a little bit out of the blue in the current environment with all the stuff going on. Constitutional reform is not the sexiest subject or the biggest vote winner. So so, <laughs> so why this and why now? There's a couple of things. I think first thing is that there's possibly going to be an almighty intratory row in the very immediate future when Johnson and Truss unveil their resignation honours. I mean... You know, frankly, the blood runs cold at thinking who might be on on that list. Like Roy Chubby Brown, like I mean, God, God knows. Like, <laughs> Anyone and everyone. Um, Johnson's likely to have nominated a bunch of absolute mutants who are sitting MPs. The fairly settled view is that even if you defer taking your seat, you can't be a member of both houses. So it's probably a good time in terms of just getting in front of the story. I think there's probably an element. I see, I see. So yeah. there's, okay. Yeah, and then sense. highlighting the need for reform because if in sort of two weeks time we're then arguing about can Nadine Doris be yeah. sort of, you know. Everyone's str- going to go Captain Hindsight. <laughs> so he beat them at their game. <laughs> he, he went out early. That's the kind of 4D centrist chess that I live for. But I think the broader point is that, as you said, unless you're... I don't know, Naomi Smith, to pull an example out of thin air, Um, while the words constitutional reform just switch everyone (laughs) off, uh, what you're probably seeing taking shape is an actual strategic platform that Labour can run on and that we can see these policies sort of coming out of. Because when you peel apart what Brown's suggesting in his review, it translates into a lot of electorally very attractive offerings, I think. Um, You know, it seems like no second jobs for MPs, greater public accountability, much stronger ethics code. And then interesting stuff about like ring fencing of local money for local industries, which we don't think about in London, but things like biotech in in Cambridge or Mm. computer Mm. games in Dundee, very specific sort of local things like that. Um, Things that you could really imagine doing well, more genuine powers for local elected mayors. So while the words constitutional reform, I don't think are going to get used much in public, they may well be the umbrella that pulls all these things together. Ella, Ella, Naomi. During recent times when the political class was losing its head and shooting from the hip with quite half-baked bills, Best for Britain has found much more thoughtful allies in the Lords. What do we risk losing if this proposal becomes reality? Uh, well, OK, so look, I can't speak highly enough of the professionalism, integrity, expertise of some of the peers that we've worked with from all parties, but they are done a disservice by the characters that they are now being forced to share that chamber with. And reform has long mm. been required. You know, the, the cash for peerages scandal continues. It's grotesque. It's got to end. And when I first saw the headline and it was like, you know, Starmer to abolish the Lords, I was like, oh, he's a unicameralist. And then I thought, <laughs> I bet Ian isn't. And why don't Naomi and Ian do an oh god what else on the benefit of <laughs> two chambers versus one? Oh shit. Naomi, are you a unicameralist? No, but I might be persuaded. Really? Fuck. I think if we keep on using the phrase unicameralist, we can lose fifteen percent of our audience every time. <laughs> are you real kidding? Time. 
Are you kidding? 10% of our audience are getting undressed right now because of the World Unicameralist. Naomi, was it, was it disappointing not to see electoral reform um, in there as part of the mix? You know, I, I guess what they're, you know, Brown and Sam are thinking, why change a system that has delivered a massive Labour majority in 97 looks... Possibly set to do so again, yeah, exactly, but yeah, <laughs> short-sighted. We know that first past post favours the Tories. If you don't believe me, look at who's been in charge for the majority of the last 70 years since it was introduced and never with majority support. So if Starmer wins the next election, he's going to spend his first parliamentary term clearing up the mess left by you know what will have been 14 years of the Tories by then. And things may not be rosy by the time another election rolls around. So failing to grasp that opportunity now, I think he's cementing his future potentially as a one-term PM and needs to realise this soon because if he doesn't put electoral reform in his manifesto, mm. the Tory heavy lords can block it on precedent. Ian, you've looked at this in some detail, obviously, while researching your new book, how Westminster works, available to pre-order now. <laughs> what view did you form of our second chamber? And is it, it did it change as you were looking at it? Yeah, it's, it's fucking brilliant. The House of Lords is absolutely fucking brilliant. And one of the very few places that anything in British politics receives expert scrutiny. So if you take um, 1999 to 2005, on 238 occasions during that period, the government was defeated in the Lords. Mm. Okay, it couldn't be defeated in the House of Commons because of the first part of the post system. The second part is more subtle, but actually weirdly more important. And it's about accepted amendments in the House of Lords. So in, between 2016 and 2017, 2,770 Lords amendments were accepted. By the government. Mm. Now that's the huge shit. If you look over at countries yep. that actually work, look at Germany, look at the Nordic countries, they operate on committee systems. New Zealand and Sweden that are unicameralists. <laughs> you and I are going to talk about this in the pub and we're going to talk about it it's hard. A, this one is <laughs> for you, fans. Um, if you look at countries that work like that, they have committee systems where the opposition are trying to improve legislation yep. and the government want the legislation to be improved. Now that does not happen anywhere in our system. It happens in the House of Lords. No, because it, it stems from an adversarial legal system uh, rather than one where an advocate goes in front of a judge. It's, it's sort of hysterical machismo is what we get in the Commons, okay? And in the Lords, so do, we so get August. Do you support assessment. an appointed? Sorry? Do you, do you support an appointed? I do a, a support chamber. a completely appointed second chamber. Um, this is the bit that we can change. I think we need to be careful about the bits that we're talking about. The first is, do we let the party leaders do the appointments? Now, when Tony Blair put forward reforms, the first thing they suggested was, OK, well, let's just get rid of that power from the prime minister. They shouldn't have that power. Of course, Tony Blair didn't fucking do yeah. it because yeah. once you're, you know, prime minister, you're like, well, actually, I quite like that power. <laughs> That's a useful power. That is a separate question to me about whether we have an elected second chamber. Now, to me, having an elected second chamber at the moment, it, you can honestly look... I would change almost everything about every part of the system as it works right now. It is failing us catastrophically. The one bit where the good work happens is in the Lords, and that's for a fucking reason. Okay. Um, conservative commentator Ian Martin has gone against the general critique of the plan. He thinks this is ultra-smart politics, he calls it, because it is a big, easy-to-communicate policy that runs with the grain of public anger with institutions. Do you think he has a point? Yeah, I think it'll be fine. You know, you know, I actually think it's, it's being done. Mm. This is a little bit conspiratorial, but I think on, on, on a good basis. I think it's a sop to liberals because a sop to liberals to go. He's not going to do electoral reform. He doesn't want to fucking talk about electoral reform. So now we're going to spend fucking years wasting our time on Lord's reform when in fact what needs to change is the electoral system. And I think ultimately it's a distraction. Mm. Can, as a final question, can I ask all three of you actually, how is Starmer's PR generally at the moment? Are there dangers to being too risk averse? Yeah, there are. But at the moment, I think he still think he's going to win the victory. You know, and it's not going to be through some genius of what he's done. It's going to be by sort of 
plodding, sensible, you know, uninspiring, uncreative political maneuvers. I think you saw it with that speech to the CBI, regurgitating this sort of Ed Miliband era fucking anti-immigration stuff. That you're just like, come on, man. Like, we, you've, there's no basis for you to say this shit. Just in terms of public support, yeah. you can get away with being more daring. But then He's again, you and I understand that, right? Because anything he says that will be instantly attacked by... 90% of newspapers and all his opponents as flinging open the door for every immigrant to come in. I you still, know how that works. I, I play, still think right? you can afford to be more... So here's the thing. You know, at the moment we have more than 50% of the British pub, of British voters who have an opinion on the issue think that immigration should stay the same or there should be more of it, according to the IPPR report that came out yep. on Wednesday, okay? Yeah, I mean, on, on that basis, he can afford to be a bit more daring and try and, and just electorally just go, I don't want these guys running away to the Lib Dems. I don't want them running away to the Greens. If you're creative and you're imaginative, you can put those two groups together in a message. I don't think he's the kind of politician that's ever going to be able to do that. Go ahead, Naomi. In terms of my own anecdata of sort of being involved with a very, very, very large number of pro-Europeans that um, you know, o operate in WhatsApp groups and uh, online meetings and things like that. This week, I've noticed a very noticeable shift in those that have up till now been prepared to go along with the, okay, yeah, we get, we get what, what Starmer's trying to, to do, to power, red yeah. wall, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah, right thing to do. And and since the, since the speech yesterday, that, that has flipped into, can we trust him? What about you, Justin? Is this 4D centrist chess? <laughs> the sort you love? God, I, I wish. It's, uh, I mean, I think to Ian's point, I think he can grind out that victory. And I've said for the last three, four years, I think make Britain boring again is going to be a remarkably powerful electoral platform for whoever just grabs it. I think people are sick of that kind of upheaval and chaos. The hope I'd got, I think, to Naomi's point, I think you're right. I think with everything we're talking about today, it feels like the ground is moving very quickly at the moment. And... I think, I hope that they can sense that and go, look, you, you've got a timeline now for when the next election's coming. You can start putting forward some more pointed offerings, which are a bit bolder. Right, before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in our regular segment, Pop the Bonnet, formerly Under the Radar. Um, like an actual... <laughs> Throbbing human twat. <laughs> <laughs> Justin. Uh, this one has been sort of on the radar, then back off it. I think the ongoing protests in Iran, uh, they've obviously had some coverage they need to stay in the news. Last weekend, this got remarkably little coverage, I thought, when they burned down Ayatollah Khomeini's house. Yeah. I mean, this, this was yeah. a very, yes, very minor item on the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sent this to Arthur Snell, who's obviously sort of his heir, and I was like, Arthur, this is quite a big deal, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, this is like the Americans burning down Mount Vernon or us burning down Buckingham Palace. I don't really see how they come back from that. Mm -hmm. mm. How about you, Ian? Uh, low traffic neighbourhoods, which we don't talk about very much okay. on here, no, but I find myself increasingly... Oh, mad. Oh, shit. Wait, Naomi's not against low traffic neighbourhoods. Oh, of course, a she's a driver. She's an. She, oh my god, she's, she's a, a unicameralist who's against low traffic neighbourhoods. Yeah, she, she'd be on. She'd be on the Grand Prix if, it, if there if was she different went levels of salience on various political issues. Naomi and I would be on very different podcasts. <laughs> anyway, so the Centre for London put out a report recently, which I've only just read on low traffic neighbourhoods, and it was quite telling because if any of you have the sort of next door app. It sort of feels like it's this vicious 50-50, you know, when you can get past the messages of people being like, be careful around the tubes, I saw some Asian men. And you're like, yeah, some, why would you mention? Like, you know, if you can get past those messages on the neighbourhood app, you get to the low traffic neighbourhood shit, which is not much better. Um, in fact, what they found was 47% support in London, 16% opposition. So it's actually not that evenly divided. The people who own a car, apart from Naomi, obviously a deep reactionary, are more likely to support these than people that don't own a car and the people that live in them are more likely to support them so actually once you experience them you become more pro them and i live in one now and to see what's happened to my street which was pretty dr grim and now has kids playing in it and people who can be relaxed and sort of well actually be prepared to be around the street who has a sense of not just health but just general being able to breathe out by not being surrounded by fucking cars all of the time. They're an absolute delight. And it's quite interesting when you look at the data, how much support they actually have. Naomi, how about you? Um, 
the number of Tory MPs who might be quietly shuffling off stage at the next election. Mm. Um, so we had uh, Chloe Smith and William Rag in the last 24 hours before recording this podcast, um, both of whom, of course, look quite vulnerable at the next election in terms of their slim majorities. Um, the point being, there are a lot of, I think, Conservatives polishing off their CVs and thinking <laughs> about next steps. Mm, good. Um, my story is about the death of a migrant uh, who was held at Manston for over a week, many say unlawfully. Here he was unwell, went to hospital, was released from hospital, was put in Manston. Four days later, um, he had a relapse and he was put in a medical bay in Manston, was not allowed to go back to hospital until the Saturday, at which point he died of massive organ failure. Um, the government then managed to empty Manston completely in 24 hours. That, to me, might be a coincidence, but to me that says they are very, very worried about the coroner's inquiry into that. Um, and that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Ian. Thank you very much. To Justin. Thank you, Alex. And to Naomi. Thank you. Our Christmas show on the 12th of December is now joyously for us, but sadly for you, sold out. You can still share in the festive anger, however, by supporting us on Patreon from as little as £3 a month. As well as the regular benefits, you will get access to a live feed of the live show. Just search for Patreon. Oh, God, what now? Now stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. After our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thank you to some of the still huge backlog of generous supporters. Hello, and thanks from me to JC, Nick, Stephen Herring, Janet Wallace, Brian Brown, and Kelly Smith. Best wishes from me to Joel Diamond, Dave Lowney, Sam Potts, Robert Shell, Graham Shaw, and Matt Lucas, but surely not that one. Surely that one. <laughs> Hello and a massive thank you from me to Vic Kroll, Lizzie F, Loz Pycock, Richard O'Hara, Terence Sutcliffe and Iren. And finally a big thanks from me to Phil Wilkinson, Kim Reynolds, Catherine Granham, Irini M and Chicken Salt. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre with Naomi Smith, Justin Quirk and Ian Dunst. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerberton. Assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producers Jacob Jarvis, group editors Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive for Patreon backers. If you're not a subscriber, we shall soon fade away like a light dusting of frost on Christmas morning. It's the 25th of November, and holiday-themed food is now dominating the supermarket aisles and specials boards. But what are the culinary treats or crimes without which it's just not Christmas for our panel? Naomi, as the biggest foodie of the group, I shall start with you. Is there a holiday staple in your family that would be considered unusual elsewhere? Oh, you you are surely... I mean, I don't want to take that crown from you. you you're a proper foodie <laughs> too, but thank you very much. Um, well, I've got... You know, most of my family are Jewish, uh, so obviously we embrace uh, Christmas with gusto because we're more like Jew-ish. Um, that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to backers on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast Oh God What Else every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>